Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Brian Kosminski, owner of True North Trout. Kaj shares his fishing journey, what makes Northern Michigan such a special place, and his thoughts on growing the sport and protecting our angling resources. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. If you tie articulated patterns, you owe it to yourself to check out their new shank jaws. The first production run sold out in minutes, but Tim and Tyler have reloaded. To check out the new Jaws and Norvice's other great products, head over to www.nor-vice.com today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Kaz, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Good evening. How are we doing? Uh, just As always, just trying to stay out of trouble. You know, we, uh, we have a tradition at the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, wow. Uh, how far back can we go? As far as you want. I remember being in like some very sun bleached red shorts standing in a lake near Allegan, Michigan, throwing out spinners or bait casters. I can't recall what it was, but I had a whole bunch of bass on a stringer my side. And I looked down and there were a couple of water snakes coming at me and one of them had mouth on one of the bluegills that I had. So it was, I must've been eight or nine, seven or eight. And that's the earliest I recall getting my feet wet. We loved, we loved camping as kids and being on the water from sunup to sundown was the best, the best experience. Yeah, that's awesome. And when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? Oh, specifically, I believe I was nine years old. Dad and grandpa took us my brother, my younger brother and I to a trout pond in Johnson park near Grand Rapids. And he was going to, grandpa was going to teach us how to fly cast. And we had the little box of generic flies from Kmart, you know, the McGinty and the bumblebee and all the other wet style flies. And grandpa proceeded to swing it back and snag a couple of trees. Um, we went home though. We caught a couple of rainbows. I went home immediately and pulled out my dad's vice and I was going to tie the best pellet fly. You know, everybody, I got it. I'm going to fool the fish and make the best pellet fly. So that was the dark side began around nine and it, it's been, been instilled since then. Yeah, there you go. And you know, who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey? Growing up, uh, West Michigan, we had, there's so many people, um, Swisher, Richards, all these books that I used to read, but there was also the local icons. Um, we got Jerry Regan up in Grayling and uh, Glenn Blackwood at the Rockford Fly Shop, Ray Schmidt, Barry Andrews, all these old timers that we all looked up to. Um, my stepmom's from Grayling, so I, I have a lot of cousins that guide for gates and guide in the, the Grayling area. So I've, I've had a lot of friends and family that have always been trout bums in one form or another, but uh, a few other guides that I've, we've always looked up to Matt Zudweg on the Muskegon, Ed McCoy. There's, there's a lot of guys out there that I've always kind of wanted to follow their footsteps, but just pay attention to and do the best you can do. 
Yeah. And so obviously we're talking pre-internet. So, you know, what was that like? Were the old timers generous or did they kind of make you work for it? They make you work for it. But at the same time, we would usually meet through like a TU fly tying event or any kind of um, like a fly fishing show. So, you know, you got to remember back in the the 90s, people are a little bit more welcoming. And we wanted to get more people involved with TU and the fly fishing public in general. So if you saw 200 people at a fly fly tying event, that was a great day. Now our numbers have to be somewhere in the thousands to make it worth paying the booth space. It's a totally different world today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when did you get the guide bug? That's, that's kind of an interesting story because my wife and I moved to Petoskey when my daughter, she's 16 now, she was one. So that was 16 years ago. And, uh, when I hit 40, I went in for a stress test to get my, my stuff done. And, uh, I had a blockage in my LAD and my wife said, if there's something you want to do with your life, you should probably get focused and, and do it. So that's when we bought a boat and started guiding more. I'd, I'd always taken people out fishing just to introduce them to the sport, get them involved in fly fishing and, and try to teach them more about trial and limited and what we do for rivers. But I think that was 11 years ago now. So it's been, it's been a great ride for 10 years. Yeah, very cool. And so, you know, did you kind of, you know, you'd fish so much, you kind of had, you know, guide folks in your family. Did you kind of immediately hang out your own shingle or did you kind of come up through like the shop ecosystem in Michigan? Kind of hung out my my own sign and did my own thing. We had a very, there wasn't a whole lot, there wasn't anybody offering anything in this area. So we had a few smaller rivers, and then, of course, people want to stay in the Manistee and the Asawa and hit the, the big names, but with smaller places like the Jordan and the Maple, lesser-known rivers, they're a little bit easier to do some more wade fishing and get people introduced to the sport. So I think that was my in. Um, one of the, the bigger things that helped me out along, I purchased an adipose uh, from Montana, and I had the first adipose in Michigan. So anybody who wanted to see what one of these boats looked like or if they wanted to row it or if they wanted to go down the river and ride in one, they booked trips with me. So it was it was kind of, I'm honestly, one of the, the best things I could have done. If I would have had a hide or a clack, I would have been just another guide with a hide. So <laughs> it, it, helped, it helped me stand out, and it definitely made me a little bit different. But the boat was also perfectly designed for the rivers that I fished. You know, the Jordan, smaller, a little bit more intimate. A lot of cedars, a lot of overhanging trees. I need to have that lower profile skiff so I could slide underneath some of that structure. Yeah, and as we were talking about before uh, we started recording on windy days, it doesn't catch as much wind either. It doesn't turn me around. It doesn't push me. It does. It's There's so many benefits to it. And it's such a stable boat for a lot of my older clients that I tell a lot of people if they have hip or knee issues, they, they realize at the end of the day, they forgot that they were in a boat for eight hours, which is probably one of the best things that you can say about being in a boat. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even though you were, you know, you kind of just put your shingle out there and went for it, you know, or are there some folks that have mentored you on your guide journey? Oh, absolutely. Um, just because I was networked with them, volunteering through Trial Unlimited, I, I worked with a lot of fly shops, donating trips and, 
I helped organize the Trout Unlimited 50th anniversary where we took a lot of guests from across the country and put them on the river and showed them a little bit of northern Michigan. So there were fly shops across northern Michigan. Of course, there's always a few guides that are willing to give and interject opinions when they're not necessarily needed, but (laughs) that's how it always is. Yeah, absolutely. Do any any mentors in particular stand out? Uh, Ray Schmidt was super helpful. So was Bear Andrews. Both of those guys uh, floated with both of them. They would tell me a lot of the do's and don'ts. Uh, you know, there's certain river systems, especially like the Asabo, where they see so much traffic and see so many boats and so many people that you've got to be really careful who you anchor next to and who you go by and who you say hi to and who you, it's just such a different world. That's why I really love the Manistee. Everybody in the Manistee is much more friendly. And when you go by somebody and ask them how the fishing is going, they actually say, Hey, pretty good. How's it going for you? You know, it's, it's a much more friendly camaraderie on the, the Manistee instead of a competitive cutthroat. You know, it's a better atmosphere altogether. Yeah, when you talk about that, it reminds me of fishing the beaverhead. Yes. You know, you have people walking out of the bushes. You have people, you know, clogging up the river for an hour to fish a hole. Yeah. And these days with kayaks and paddle boards, and there's more recreational users on every river than there were 20 years ago. You know, and this is, we're coming out of pandemic there's more guides now because you didn't have to go through all the same loopholes we used to have to go through as far as getting state land use permits and getting insured. Anybody can be a guide now because there's nobody checking in Michigan. It's, it's a little bit funny. Yeah. That's how it is here in North Carolina too. I think literally you just give fishing game 35 bucks a year and you're a fishing guide. Yep. That's pretty much all it takes. And all you have to do is watch a YouTube video and you got it all figured out. <laughs> there you right? Go. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> it's know. Like, it's like changing your light bulb on your Honda SUV. It's just watch a video and you can figure it out. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, since I've fished for a while, I sometimes, you know, get called upon to kind of help or coach people that are going out west. And, you know, to your point, you have to warn them about those kids that kind of go out and they basically go out a week before they start taking clients and they learn how to float like one section of the river and not wreck the boat. If they're lucky. Yeah. And that's where you're going to fish, whether the fishing is good or bad. So I, I totally hear yeah. what you're saying. And every river has its pluses and minuses. and Every section has its, its time of the year that it shines. And then the rest of the year, you might as well just, you know, float a bobber with nothing underneath it because nothing's in there. Um, and I'm a little bit concerned about that right now. And this will probably, I'll save that for later, but our temperatures right now and our water levels here in Michigan, it's going to be, August is going to be, I'm scared. Yeah. Well, it's, it's dry here in the mid Atlantic too. And it's been, we've gotten our first good pop of hot of heat a little bit early, I would say. Well, I think our biggest issue was we were four feet low for snowpack in Northern Michigan and so far this spring, we've only received two inches of rain, and we should have had somewhere between eight and nine inches. So we're definitely in the deficit, you know, seven inches of rain and four feet of snow. It's good because the Great Lakes levels are going down, but the Manistee in front of my cabin right now looks like it's August level, and it's it's the end of May. So 
it's going to be a, it's going to be a long summer. I think we're going to see a lot of rivers shut down. Temperatures we're going to we're going to be right back to where we were last year, and more than fifty percent of the rivers will be shut down. That puts a lot of stress on the few rivers that stay cold. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one thing you know, I always do when we have guides on the show uh, is ask them to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide. The biggest misconception my wife says is that we eat fish all the time. Everybody always asks her, "So you guys eat fish?" <laughs> like, <laughs> no, we, we never eat fish unless it's walleye, and somebody caught it and they brought it to me. Um, the biggest misconception in my world is that I actually get to fish. You know, it's I'm on the water a lot, but rarely, if, rarely if ever, is the rod in my hand. Um, this year, I did take a couple extra days off so that I can fish with myself and buddies just because that's what we need to do in order to keep our sanity and enjoy what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you were talking earlier and uh, that, you know, you really kind of took the deep dive with True North Trout about 10 years ago. But my recollection is that the company is almost 20 years old, right? That is true. Uh, but it was kind of handed over to me on a silver platter. There was a gentleman named Jordan Lindbergh who started the blog, the True North Trout blog. And he called me up and asked if I'd be interested in taking over the, the writing portion of it. Um, he was networked in with Northern Angler and other fly shops in Northern Michigan, but he wanted to retire and go to Florida and do, um, he does cremation services and, uh, online e-fulfillment services. So he wanted to hand it over to somebody who was pretty dialed in with Michigan rivers and had his pulse on what was going on with Trot Limited and all that. So he found me and asked me if I'd be willing to take over and do the writing for it. I'm not a prolific writer by any means, and I don't consider myself to be a writer, but uh, my wife said it would be a good experience for me to do. And so I picked it up and maintained and keep, you know, pushed it to where it is today. There's a lot more people that know what True North Trout is. I think this, and it was luckily for me, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, getting into guiding, if you have a Facebook page and Instagram page, you can do it. I think I got in at the right time where it definitely did not hurt that both of those social media outlets helped me progress to get to a level where I've got 5,000 followers on each. And I can, I can reach a pretty good audience, although we try to avoid the grip and grins and we try to keep it more on the what's happening in the state, the chumming laws, the grailing issue, all those other hot topics seem to generate a lot of views. But uh, we try to we try to keep focused on the conservation and what's going on in the state of Michigan and the Great Lakes in general. Yeah, very neat. And so you wrote for, what, about 10 years before you kind of completely converted True North Trout into your guide service? Uh, I was writing and guiding at the same time. Um, it kind of just went hand in hand. It made sense to, you know, do like reviews or do a fly tying video and still got it at the same time. I mean, you know, the primary season of your guide year is May through October. What are you going to do the rest of the year? I wasn't sales repping yet. So I was working in a restaurant and I, the winter time was a great time for me to do writing, do some reviews, do some reading do some fly tying and then in the summertime we're on the river we're fishing 
Got it. And you've also got several guys working with you, right? Yep. Uh, for a while, I had three or four different guides that were underneath me. Now it becomes a point. I've got a buddy, Sam, who's up in Petoskey, Dakota, who also guides. There's three or four other local guides that I can refer people out to. It, You know, it becomes a point where somebody hits Google and they look fly fishing in northern Michigan and two north trout shows up. So they give me a call. I'm already booked, but I'm happy to help and try to put somebody in the right direction so that they can get a northern Michigan experience. Got it. And speaking of a northern Michigan experience, you know, um, I've been lucky enough to, to fish in the state. It's probably one of the fishiest and, you know, most outdoor sport oriented places I think I've ever been. And, you know, it's funny because I was fishing with, uh, Mr. Dieter last week and, uh, he said that he got a lot of heat one time when he put Michigan in the top three fishing states in the country. And he's like, you know why? Because anybody can go to Montana and catch 20 fish or, you know, insert whatever state you want. But come to Michigan and float down the river and work the wood all day long to, to get your 20-incher is, I mean, Michigan's a fishy place, but you got to put in your time and you got to put in the effort. It doesn't just come handed over to you like, <laughs> like a birthday gift, you know. There's definitely some work that gets involved, but it's also very rewarding at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because you're, you know, the entire state's basically a big sandy peninsula. And so, you know, to your point, you got a lot of timber in the water, you know, not uncommon to have, you know, kind of tannic stained water. But also, you know, there's a lot more, you know, sandy bottom structure than maybe in some other places, right? Correct. Um, that also, because of our stream flows are fairly constant because a lot of that water is groundwater bubbling up through an aquifer or from springs there's a lot of sandy section but then there'll be a gravel section then it'll be a deep long slow low gradient uh muddy murky silty section but that's also what gives us our diversity in the the macro invertebrates so we have some of our rivers are some of the healthiest bug rivers that you can find um and some rivers that shouldn't be super good bug rivers because they're, they're fairly sterile, they still produce a lot of bugs. And I would imagine, too, kind of the, the different, you know, slack water, riffle water, you know, sandy, not as much structure water also gives you a little bit more species diversity, too, right? Yes, all depending on the temperature variant. But, you know, there's, there's been a few times when we've caught a walleye by accident or you catch a smallmouth when you bigger, we call it frog water, you know, the bigger, slower water, but big brown trout tend to like to live at that, the northern end of their temperature range where they can, where other brook trout don't want to live, but that's why they get big because they're eating crayfish. They're eating other fish. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of, you know, it's not just trout, you know, you've got other species, you know, talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the arc of your fishing season in terms of you know, the species and the hatches, because um, I think people would find that super interesting. It really is, because as soon as we get ice out, you know, April, we're on, we can float most of our rivers 12 months of the year, even the coldest month, February, but your stuff might freeze up 
the river may get locked up, but there's generally a section of water that's open. You can throw streamers or go nymphing, and that's generally going to be a trout situation. But once the lakes unfreeze or the ice is off, we can start targeting pike, bass, smallmouth especially, the Great Lakes, all of our inland bays that we have from Grand Traverse Bay, East Bay, all the way up to Mackinac. We were up near Mackinac City catching smallmouth. 20 inches is an average fish, um, and they're five to six pounds. They're lake fish, and they're super aggressive. They're pre-spawned. They're looking to get get fed, and they're also very hot and angry. Right about now, we're going to start to see a warm-up. The first couple weeks in June, the carp should be moving in on the flats. Carp fishing on the fly is, it sounds not attractive to a lot of people until you do it, and that that is one of the legit fish in Michigan that will get you to your backing in seconds. They they don't, there's no joke when you call it the mud bones of the flats. Um, and Northern Michigan has some 30 pound torpedo carp in the Great Lakes that will get you, they'll, they'll definitely test all of your skill and line control. As the season gets better, May, I think is one of our best months because we're just seeing the start of a lot of our bugs hatching. We had mahoganies this week. Lessers and graders. Uh, Hendrickson's obviously were a couple weeks ago. That was an early hatch because we had a very warm spring and lack of snow again. Um, right now we're seeing some bigger sulfurs. This week we're hoping to see the drakes. Brown drakes are going to start popping. Gray drakes on some select rivers like the Muskegon, which is a little bit further south, but the gray drake hatch can be awesome because it's a daytime hatch and you can catch some awesome brown trout. Uh, as the summer progresses and we get through the hex isos, one of my favorite hatches because they're they're pretty consistent when they come off and the bigger fish will key in on them. Later on in summer, if it gets too warm on on these rivers, we're going to start moving to smallmouth bass and fishing the lower ends of a lot of these rivers, or we can move into lakes. You know, June can be a a month. I can wake up and say in the morning let's go fish bluegills we'll get them off beds we can have them tonight for dinner and then we can go hit a, a bass lake or a pike lake and then in the evening go hit a brown drake hatch and catch brook trout or brown trout it's one of the most amazing states to be able to catch so many different species all in the same day and we haven't even touched on the atlantics that we have up in uh the sault st marie atlantic salmon we have some in torch and then there's an awesome musky fishery over in St. Clair. So a lot of guys are chasing 60-inch musky down there. I haven't done that yet. I haven't chased the fish of 10,000 casts, but I, I hope one day I can build up my stamina to go play that game. Yeah, very neat. And what about steelhead? Steelhead. I totally didn't even mean to miss over steelhead and salmon, an adramus species, you know, in the fall. We've got Atlantics, and we have cohos moving in our rivers, and behind them, of course, the browns are eating their eggs, and steelhead will follow in as well. And a lot of steelhead will stay all winter long, and then they have their primary run in the spring. Uh, the Great Lakes have had their ups and downs. I mean, it's a, it's a fragile ecosystem, and we don't have as much zooplankton because of the zebra mussels and the quagga mussels, but we're seeing better numbers, better size, and a better overall fishery in the salmon and we're talking salmon and steelhead although a lot of people are concerned about the muskegon river they're seeing less numbers of steelhead and there's a big argument the fly guys are saying it's the bait guys the bait guys are saying it's the charter guys 
biologists are kind of questioning maybe it's because of the higher water and when the smolt are trying to get back out to the big lakes, they're getting eaten by predatory fish like walleye and pike. Because as the lake levels are high, a lot of the mouth, the areas where the river dumps into the lake have a lot more predatory fish. Yeah, interesting. And is your steelhead fishing, you know, do they behave differently than, let's say, you know, on the Lake Erie side? You know, the Lake Erie side, it is a different fishery because those are all shorter, faster, quick runout rivers. Um, but they're still just big rainbow trout. Um, I think the difference is, and there's a difference between fishing the Pigeon or the Sturgeon River as opposed to fishing the Pier Marquette. You've got a 120-mile-long river versus a 40- or 60-mile-long river. The fish, are they still like the same type of water. You know, they, they want that 7 to 9 feet per second flow. They're going to stay in something that's moving. And the more times you bounce an egg or a stonefly or whatever favorite pattern that you have, I think it's, it's a temperature regulated game. They get, they get aggressive and fast between 48 and 51 degrees. And that's when steelhead fishing can be hot, whether it's sunny or cloudy, it's hard to predict. But again, the only way you're going to find out is by going, you can't, you can't sit on the couch and predict if the steelhead fishing is going to be awesome today or not. Yeah. And it'll be better than any day at the office, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Except, you know, with the COVID thing again, we've had more people at Tippy Dam than record numbers. Everybody's showing up to go go fishing because they've got nothing else better to do. <laughs> so, you definitely have to get your spot in line, and it becomes a uh, procession waiting to get to the next spot. Every one boat picks up an anchor and moves out, and then three boats slide down. Everybody slides down. Yeah, so you need. Yeah, that's Fishery. even yeah, that's even before you at least, you know, I've fished over on the Lake Erie side, even that's even before you have to worry about the Canadians and the center penners. Correct. <laughs> it's you want to talk about a very effective method. It's the center pinners, they have it dialed down. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And you know, to talk a little bit more about the guiding thing and then we'll talk about the manufacturer manufacturer's rep game. You know, tell folks a little bit about what a day on the water with you or one of your other guides is like. We like to try to keep it, how do I, I want to say that we, we like to keep it local. Um, I take special pride in the fact that most of my life was service industry. So we will go to the farmer's market and get fresh fruit or cheeses. And I'll usually buy a sandwich, subs or something from a local deli in town. Um, there's a French bakery in town that I get scones and crepes from. We always bring scones on trips and it's, at the end of the day, you know, it's not a subway experience. You can go to subway from Cleveland to Honolulu. It's always going to be the same. But when you're in Northern Michigan, you're, you're on the river and your, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your sense of everything is, is heightened because you're not getting bombarded by all these other noises and sounds. You're, you're paying attention to where you're at. So I think having that experience is awesome. Um, try to fish and cater the river to the person's ability and level. A lot of people will call me up and say, Hey, let's go fish the Jordan. I hear there's big fish there. I said, okay, then let's, I'll meet you at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. And then they ask, you mean at night? I said, yeah, you want to go catch big fish? We're going to go float at night. And then they reply with, I've never fished at night before. I said, well, maybe we should work ourselves up to that. Let's do a day trip on the Manistee. It's going to be a little bit better for casting for you. 
you know, you've got to really level your expectations with the client's expectations so that they don't walk into, well, this wasn't what I expected. I didn't think, you know, I've, I've taken out a lot of beginners that have only spin fished and it's a totally different world learning how to read a river while you're moving because they still have a bass fishing mentality and they're casting behind the boat. So I want to try to condense my 40 years of knowledge into a couple of hours to try to give somebody the best advantage at trying to catch a 12 inch fish, right? <laughs> it's, it's easier than it sounds, but it's more difficult, a lot more difficult and complicated when you get out there and you're actually trying to put everything together. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like, you know, for, I used to work with uh, the local project healing waters group and, you know, other folks too, you know, even people like say from the local federation or TU club, like maybe going out West and, you know, it's always amazing to me how reticent people are to tell their guide what they want to accomplish. Right. It's, and that's what you want to do off the bat. Yeah. I mean, I would always tell, tell folks, I was like, guys, it's your day and it's your money. Like you need to be really honest. Cause you know, if you want to go whack 60 fish on an indicator, that's really different than catching two or three really big fish on streamers. <laughs> that is true. Right. And when you go out, when you go out West, that's all they want to do is indicator. And we're going to do a number. We want to get 20 fish in the boat. I'm like, no, I just want to catch one or two nice fish. That's, yeah. that's my game. That's yeah. what I enjoy. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, and then the other thing too, is then people get that whole kind of social media numbers game in their head and they don't realize that, you know, like you and I could go out and fish and it could be really tough and we could get like three or four fish and that's awesome. I've yes. I've said that many times somebody asked, there were new, new people a couple of weeks ago and they're like, so what ha- what's it like when you and a couple of fishing buddies go out and fish? I'm like, it's fishing. Some days it's red hot and some days it doesn't matter. You can't buy it. You can't buy a strike. You can't help Mother Nature along. I mean, you can do the best you can, but the weather, the water levels, the temperature, there's so many variables. It's nature. You yeah. just can't make them play. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I always tell people that, you know, the trick is you want to ask yourself at the end of the day if everything that was humanly possible to put you on fish was done. And if the answer is yes, then you had a good day, even if you didn't catch any fish. Yeah, yeah, you're on the water. And, and I've had some of my best clients that have been from Patagonia to Chile and Alaska, and they may not catch a fish at all. They they don't care because they're on the water, and that's that's the relaxing part of the whole deal. When they get a fish, it's it's it, it's cliche to say it, but catching fish is just a bonus. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. I mean, I believe that too. Like, I'm not a big uh, picture taker, right? Because I mean, I've seen it, so. Um, you know, every now and again, I'll take a picture and if it's one of my boys, I certainly will take a picture, but you know, I don't do a lot of pictures. And there's nothing wrong with that because you've got the memory. This, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what this whole social media generation has been brought up on. We have to dock it pictures yeah. or it didn't happen. And yeah. I'm like, well, <laughs> not so you know much. I've got a couple of clients that don't want their picture taken and they don't want the fish taken out. They just want the hook removed and let the fish go. I'm like, I'm super happy to do that for you. Yeah. And you also have to make sure you don't get your metadata in a secret spot or you're kind of done. So it's, that's becoming, and no matter what, whenever you post, I had one of my regular clients catch a really nice 25 inch fish a couple weeks ago and he put on the, the grip glove, the fish mitt. And I don't want to post it because I know that everybody's going to comment about the fish glove. 
<laughs> everybody's a critic, right? As soon as you put it out there, everybody's going to let you know what you did wrong. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, you wear a lot of hats and one of the hats you wear is you're a manufacturer's representative. And, you know, how did you break into the rep game, Cause? I, I, Ray Schmidt was TFO and he had been looking at me for a few years, asked me if I would like to bring on the brand and become a rep. And I, I just think that at this stage in my life, it's the perfect natural progression and it fits in perfectly with what I do. I can take clients out like you and show you a brand new rod and maybe turn you on into a new family of rods that you've never known or tried before. Um, I like talking the talk and being at shows and talking with people. Uh, so Temple Forks is one of my brands. Just recently added Norvice about a month and a half ago. So I'm excited to get on the road this fall and show some people that the many qualities that Norvice can do for a new tire or old tires if you want to try and learn a new method. I also do Wind River gear. They have a lot of streamside accessories. Dreamcast flies. Fishy Ware from Alaska. She does a lot of really cool leggings. Uh, grayling, salmon, coho, bonefish prints, fun, attractive designs. And I also have Snowby because they have a great outdoor line of apparel. Yeah, very neat. And I assume, you know, you're an upper Midwest guy. So kind of what's your territory for those uh, manufacturers? Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. Um, we keep toying around with the idea of Wisconsin and Minnesota, but it's, the Great Lakes are kind of a, a very large obstacle. And uh, most of our travel, you know, I'm moving, running around early in the spring or late in the fall to get everybody's orders. Today we're fielding phone calls because everybody's excited about what's coming in the fall from TFO and they want to get the new rods. We're trying to hold off on major announcements until ICAST and because of COVID, everything's a little bit goofed up, shipping, getting stuff, containers from Korea to the U.S. They get to the U.S. and we can't get them unloaded. They're stuck at Long Beach. We can't get them to Dallas. Then we can't get them up here. We don't want to make promises and not deliver. So we're holding off until, I'm going to say, July to see new product in the States. But that works out good. September, October, you will see new rods in all of our dealers. Got it. And, you know, what about your other brands? Um, they have different setups because I think in the rod industry, everybody gets super keyed in and excited for what's coming for 2022, right? Um, Fishyware has a couple of new patterns. So it's not like, it's not like they're rewriting the whole, designing a whole new rod or anything. We're bringing in... Uh, next year, we're looking at adding some men's apparel, and you might actually see some casual loungewear, like fleecy pants and uh, zip tops, so that we can men can wear some fishy wear. We might call it something else. We don't know yet. We're going to leave that on the table. But uh, everybody's got a couple of changes, and I can't wait to see what we have coming out. Yeah, so it sounds like maybe some of the other brands are kind of more what you would call kind of fly fishing groceries. Right. Yes. Yes. Necessities. Yeah. And so, you know, how does, you know, you were talking a little bit about, you know, 
calling and talking to people today, but I also know you're getting primed for the hex hatch. So kind of how do you, how does this kind of weave itself into your fishing season? Is it, you know, kind of handled the best you can while you're guiding and then you're going and kind of visiting shops and kind of doing the hand-to-hand work uh, when the season's over? Well, in Michigan, and especially the Midwest, a lot of fly shops don't really want to talk to you at the busiest time of the year. So it, it works out really good for me to lay low, <laughs> do the guiding thing, you know, June and July, come around in August when the fishing is really not that great because it's going to be 100 degrees out and the rivers will be warm. And I, I don't want to be on the river then anyway. And I can visit shops. So it'll it all works out and balances pretty well. And then I'll make a few more rounds once we hit September and October as people start to get back in their back-to-school groove. This Everything's changed in the industry in the past year and a half. You know, it's been Zooms, Zoom, Zoom. And some fly shops, you don't know what their, their climate is before you walk in, whether they're pro-mask or anti-mask or vaxxers or no-vaxxers, and you don't want to upset anybody. So you come in, you have to be very cautious about saying or doing anything. But at the same time, I don't want to avoid visiting a shop because they don't they don't want to see you but at the same time i want to be there to be present you know so it's a very it's a double-edged sword this this pandemic has shown different sides of consumers and dealers all at the same time yeah it's interesting right because i mean obviously the online presence you know for like someone like schultz has been huge right um but but i would think you know for you as a rep you know it's beneficial one to just to go in, you know, cause I suspect there's some kind of business coaching that you can kind of do in addition to just kind of seeing what people carry and kind of what the vibe of a shop is. Absolutely. And you want to be there in order to either assist the products that they have or to help have a better presence to get better footing within a dealer or in a shop. Um, and like you mentioned, somebody like Schultz's or Mad River those guys have such a great captive audience because they have strong social media, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, anybody who has a good web presence has had one of the best years ever in the past year. We've seen some fly shops close, but it wasn't necessarily due to a pandemic. It, they were going to close anyway. Um, I think we're going to see that in a lot of businesses in the next couple of years, but it's kind of like we're, we're shaking the, the tree and seeing what falls and uh, we, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time at a dealer that just wants to buy one or two things. You definitely need to pay attention to that shop that, that needs your assistance be there, but also don't forget that you've got this other account over here that orders 10,000, whatever, make sure you're taking care of everybody. So I try to treat, treat everybody fair and get to as many people as I can, but, Obviously, some fly shops call more and they need more attention. Others don't, but everybody's different. You know, it's everybody runs their own business their own way. Yeah, no, it's like I always tell people, you know, if you have more than one kid, you, every kid's different, right? They're just hatched. Eh. Oh my gosh. Yes, they do. And they <laughs> develop different. Yeah. And you can, you can educate them or help them out along as best as you can but you can't teach them how to ride a bike by riding a bike yourself. You got to let them do it. Yep. So 
there's some other, there's a few other dealers that I keep insisting. You've got to have some kind of presence. Nobody knows you exist. And they're like, how come we can't sell this rod? How come we can't? Have you tried this? No, that doesn't work. But have you tried it? (laughs) (laughs) Just give it a try. (laughs) And then you can tell me it doesn't work. But I know it's just like having kids. That's a very good analogy. Yeah, it's that's funny. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about COVID and kind of the impact that it's having on TFO getting stuff from Korea to the States. But, you know, I think either people firsthand have experienced it um, or anecdotally they've they've heard about it. You know, there's all kinds of disruptions for all kinds of different reasons related to COVID that have made it, you know, hard to get tippet, hard to get fish hooks, tying materials, rods, lines, all sorts of stuff. You know, kind of what are you seeing and when do you think, you know, we'll get back to something that's kind of normal where you can, you know, always go and buy a, you know, size 100 TMC 100? Well, you know, uh, we didn't, we, we didn't predict that this was going to last this long. The demand for the industry, the demand for all outdoor industries, you know, whether it's biking or kayaking or hiking or camping every outdoor industry has, has felt the crunch. Um, I know with like TMC, that one little village that does that one specialized, you know, the 105 or the 100, they make so many this month and the next month they're making something else and the next month they're making something else. It takes three months for them to come back around to making a certain size of something. I know that with the, the fly rods and the fly fishing, a lot of our componentry comes from China, even though we make our rods in South Korea, we're waiting on a rod tube or we're waiting on a resin or we're waiting on something to get the whole package put together and get it over here. Some companies have switched manufacturing from whatever small componentry it was to make something for the medical field, or maybe they're, they're making iPhone cases because they sell for $2 more than whatever their make their other product was. So there's a a huge disruption in getting the parts that we need for everything. And then there's a disruption in the actual supply chain, getting it over to the country because our country right now has every shipping container in the world and they're all full waiting to be unloaded because we don't have the staff or the manpower to get it done. We're in a, we're in a very unique space. We also see the light at the end of the tunnel. I want to predict, if I had a magic ball that the end of this summer will be the, you know, when, when this bottoms out, it's going to bottom out and we're not going to see the demand, but we want to keep riding the wave as long as we possibly can. But at the same time, we don't want to be left with 10,000 units on hand that nobody's going to buy. So we're being very cautious and we're trying to watch the market and, you know, every shop is saying, send me more, send me double. I can sell it all. But, once we send you double and the demand drops, you're going to be stuck with it all. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a very, it's a delicate balance, a tricky tightrope to walk right now. And kudos to all the companies that are out there working through this because we all want, we all want to sell rods. That's what we do. And everybody thinks, well, why don't you just make more? Can't you make twice as many? Our factory only gets so much raw materials, we can only make so much and ship, let's say, whatever the number is, 5,000 rods a month. 
that's what we're at. We're actually up 20%. We're making 20% more than we make any other given year. And we just cannot get ahead of the demand. And I think everybody's the same way. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a really interesting multifaceted, multifaceted challenge, right? On all levels. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's neat. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this cause throughout the interview, but, and one of the things when I was preparing, I noticed that you're super active doing education and outreach. And I wanted, you know, for folks that don't know you well, um, for you to tell us a little bit about what you're doing, but then also, you know, it's clear that giving back and doing outreach and education is really important. If you could kind of talk to us a little bit about what motivates you to do all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it goes back to my dad. Uh, he passed away April 26, 10 years ago. And uh, he was always a member of MUCC, Michigan United Conservation Corps, and uh, Trout Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited. He was always sending in money to whatever group. And I think that definitely had an influence on me. I try to take it to the next level and be involved in those groups whether it's BHA or Conservation Resource Alliance, tip of the minute, I try to be involved and volunteer with as many groups as I possibly can. We also do, or I started a salmon in the classroom program with one of our schools up here uh, 12 years ago. We brought salmon eggs home and we raised them and the kids got to let them go in the river and they watched the salmon go from eggs to little bitty smolts if we don't reach out to our kids in the next generation, who's, who's going to care about the river after I'm gone? You know, it's like, I look at my girls, I have an eight year old and a 16 year old and they love bugs. Everybody sees us walking around downtown and we're collecting mayflies and putting them in a bug container. And all the locals think that the kids are freaks. I'm like, they're just mayflies, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's it's what we do. And we're, we're not collecting cockroaches folks. Right. And even if so, even if we were, there's something education would be learned about it. Um, the school always calls me up to help out with field days because they know I'm the bug guy and I'll take the kids down to the river and we'll turn over some rocks and look at stoneflies. It's, I, I'm lucky. I'm blessed to live where I do to have what I have. And I'm more than proud to share it with anybody who wants to take five minutes and learn about a river and catch a fish. And I think there's no better place for me to be in my life right now than where I am to do what I do. And I'm, I'm happy and I feel blessed to be able to do it. Yeah, that's really neat. And, you know, kind of a related uh, question is, you know, I don't know anyone that likes to hunt and fish that says they've done it as much in a year as they want to. Right. I think everyone always says I didn't get out as much as I wanted. Um, Correct. And, and you've been really lucky to not only, you know, fish as an avocation, but you've been able to, you know, have it occupy a large part of your professional life. And, you know, are are there any words of advice you would give folks that want to kind of get that professional life and their outdoor passion aligned to kind of make that happen? Don't wait. Um, (laughs) I wish that I could have had, I'm an alcoholic. I quit drinking 20 years ago. It's not an easy thing. And I throw that out there too easy and too often, but I've also helped a lot of people who struggle with addictions. And, um, I wish when I was 22, I would have had the balls and the gumption to put down the bottle and go to Alaska or go to Patagonia or go wherever and travel and fish and do the things that 
I wasted way too much time in my youth that I'll never be able to get back. You know, it's like, man, I wish I would have tried doing what I do today when I was in my twenties, but I had to, I had to get my bumps and I had to do what I did and learn. I had to learn the hard way, just like that kid riding a bike. I had to fall down a few times before I learned which way I wanted to go, but I wouldn't change it. And every day when I'm sitting at home, I'm looking outside right now. It's beautiful. I can smell the lilacs and the fresh blooming flowers and trees and I'm happy to be here and I know within 10 minutes I can go beyond a river and go catch some fish or just stand in the river and, and look around and enjoy where I'm at. Yeah, absolutely. It's always interesting too, as you, as I like to say, as you get a few more miles on your tires, you start to think about, you know, to your point, those things that are not as easy for you to do anymore or, you know, trips that you need to take. Cause if you wait too long, you're not going to be able to take them. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> definitely it's it definitely takes a lot more to get stuff done today and there's also the family obligations we've got so much more that we want to take care of and that's my priority absolutely and um you know since you as i like to say you have you, you i think you and i are probably about the same age so i think we probably have about the same tread uh taken off our tires um <laughs> the uh um, close yeah yep. so uh, just kind of curious, you know, you've been around the sport a long time, kind of your kind of thoughts on, you know, the changes that you've seen and, you know, you've talked a little bit about kind of decreased engagement and what that means for conservation, but kind of those changes and kind of any concerns you have about the future of our sport. You know, I think the changes that we've seen have been, a lot of people like to say there's so much negative with Facebook, you know, everybody's putting out pictures and we're showing all this, but at the same time, when we need, when we need help on a river or when we need help on conservation, because they're going to put a mine in, we seem to band together and work more efficiently and faster because of getting the word out, getting people aware, educating the public. I think that social awareness is a huge benefit. Um, I also think as far as the industry goes, I think back to the first Abu Garcia, it was a fiberglass Abu Garcia rod that I had that maybe cost $200. Today wouldn't cost $10 because the materials that we're using are it's light years ahead. We, we can get a kid outfitted with a $200 combo today that would have cost a thousand dollars 20 years ago. You know, it's what a great time to be alive. We have, so many great resources. We have so many great rivers. And I think we have a lot of people that are out paying attention, taking care of and being better river stewards than we had even in the eighties. I mean, we were throwing garbage bags out our car window as we drove down the road. And now we see a lot more people that are being a lot more ethical and conservation minded about what we do and everything that we do. We're teaching our kids how to be, better recyclers in every little step of their life because if we don't this whole planet's going to be one big dump so there's a lot of brightness that i see in the future we're a long way from getting it all figured out but at the same time you know kick plastic i bring my nalgene bottle with me everywhere i go and i carry my own water and i try to encourage everybody else to bring their own when they come on a trip um educating people as we go along it's it's the best thing that we can do being being guides and being on the water and taking care of our our resources 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before I let you hop tonight, Kai, why don't you let folks know where they can find you uh, on the internet and on social media so they can follow your fishing adventures and um, also maybe call you and book in fish with you. Absolutely. You can find me at truenorthtrout.com. Uh, also, Instagram and Facebook at True North Trout. And you can give me a call at 231-675-1237. I'm Northern Michigan up in Boyne City on the beautiful Lake Charlevoix. Love to get people out on the water. Absolutely. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes for folks. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, listen, Kaz, I super appreciate you uh, carving an hour out of your uh, your post-fishing day to to chat with me. Excellent. I thank you, and I appreciate sharing some time with you. It's always great talking to you. It's almost like we've known each other for 100 years. Yeah, exactly. I think if you added our age together, we'd be close to 100. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, listen, take care, and I'll see you soon. Excellent. You too. Take care. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to head on over to www.norhyphenvice.com to check out those new shank jaws. Tight lines, everybody. <laughs>